0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, I'm Samantha Bond, uh, commonly known as Sam. Now, when I'm not doing my day job working alongside Maggie Smith, Pierce Brosnan, or even the gorgeously hirsute Burt Reynolds, God rest his soul... I'm an ambassador for a wonderful organisation called Acting for Others. And together, we've paired up some of the UK's brightest stars of stage and screen for hmm, intimate conversations about, well, their passion for theatre, trials and triumphs, loves and losses, and a whole lot more.
2: I said, the theatre is a temple and you should be ashamed of yourself for desecrating it. Me as a black woman was not getting any of that work or any of that
1: practice. And now I'm in this position, post-50, I'm ageing in. Ben Wishore, the hardest man to make corpse on stage, I only got him once. Dear listener, there's a very good reason why we're doing this. We think that theatre is something to truly treasure and it must be protected at all costs starting with the people working in it. And this is where Acting for Others comes in, because we provide both financial and emotional support to production crew, front of house, actors, set designers, in fact, anyone working in UK theatre in times of need through a network of 14-member charities. And every penny this podcast generates will go to those charities. In fact, you listening now is helping, so thank you. And if you'd like to go further and make a donation, listen to the end for details or click the link in the show notes. This episode it's Miriam Margolese and Sir Derek Jacobi, recorded in April 2022. Enjoy.
2: This is um, a kind of a, I'm thinking of it as a joint celebration. Of the skills that we have. Yes. And the lives that we've been able to lead, that we've been allowed
3: to lead. And the luck we've had on the way. Astonishing. Yes, yeah.
2: When you started, can I go back to Cambridge? Because one of the things that we share is the university. It was the proudest moment of my life when I got into Cambridge. Was it for you?
3: Yes, yes, it was. Um, I felt... Very much out of my depth at first, because I was just 19, and I was surrounded by a lot of young male undergraduates who had done national service, who were kind of young men. I still felt very much the grammar school boy, lucky enough to get into university. But I found myself surrounded by um, adults, and I didn't feel an adult at first. I still felt um, a schoolboy. And it, it took me a good first year, really, to get over that and to mature a bit. I've never matured very much.
2: No, I don't, I don't think of you as, as mature. No. Because you're too cheeky, you're too mischievous <laughs> to mature. And I certainly haven't matured. I might have gone rotten. <laughs> I haven't matured, I know that.
3: No, I haven't really, I haven't. No.
2: Did you immediately know that you wanted to be an actor then? I mean, oh
3: yes, I'd been in school plays. I'd played Hamlet at school, and with a very enterprising English master who got us to the fringe of the Edinburgh Festival in um, 1957, and uh, I played Hamlet on the fringe, and I I got reviewed by the London critics. Ken Tynan gave me. I was told a bad review, but apparently he said, as Hamlet, I would make a fine prose actor, which was considered a terrible slight.
2: Yes, it's a bit
3: rude. It's a bit rude, yes.
2: How many times have you
3: played Hamlet? Uh, Nearly 500. Um, It's 400 and something. But how many productions? About five, including the telly. When they did all the Shakespeare's on telly, I did Hamlet and Richard II. God, it it seems a long time ago.
2: You see, you're a serious actor. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. It just means that you have been recognised...
3: I do Shakespeare. ...as doing
2: Shakespeare and the classics. And that's something that I... A posh actor, posh actor, yep. Yeah. And I've never made it as a posh actor. I was always a sort of funny little side person
3: but there's no there's no better and best though is
2: there do you think well i think there are levels of achievement but i'm not bitter about it because i think that's just stupid i think i've been very lucky to survive into my 90th decade Mm. as an actress yeah looking as i do behaving
3: as i do (laughs) speaking sometimes as you do
2: (laughs) do you think that works against me i i don't know that it does i don't think so
3: no of course not of course not it's it's one i think is one of your attributes (laughs) it's it's why people keep tuning in you know is she gonna swear now probably probably (laughs) probably i'm lucky
2: because i've made it work
3: for me, yes, I
2: found the niche yes. that is Miriam shaped,
3: yes, yes, and
2: I've been able to make a career.
3: That is the trick of it.
2: You're one of the glories. You're one of the ornaments of our profession, oh. and you've worn that with such grace and such humility. It's really lovely. Oh. I can't bear it when I see a smug actor. Do you know what I mean?
3: I do, I do know what you mean, and, and thank you for that. It's very, very sweet of you. Um, but I, I've always just tried to be myself and not to kind of crow about whatever I've done because I've always thought that I have been lucky. I have somehow been in the right place at the right time. I've been given opportunities that I haven't had to go out and seek. They have come to me. And that is a blessing. That is pure good fortune. And it's happened throughout my career, really. And I bless it.
2: That's lovely. It's lovely to hear because it doesn't happen to everybody. You know, some people-
3: No, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the the unfair thing. There are lots of talented people out there who, who don't get the chance. And I've had the chance in spades.
2: When you were at Cambridge, who were the people that you admired and who, who you worked with that you remember?
3: Oh, there were lots. There was one called Miriam Margulies. Um, <laughs> I mean, Corinne, <laughs> of course. Corinne, Ian McKellen, um, Trevor Nunn, uh, Bamber Gascoigne, Maggie Drabble.
2: And how did you make the shift from university acting into the, the proper world?
3: <laughs> I wrote begging letters to various reps. I thought, shall I try and get into drama school now? But then I thought, well, no, I've done a lot of acting here in Cambridge and on tour from Cambridge in the vacations to Europe and over this country. And I thought, it's all been practical. It's all been in front of an audience. I've I've somehow learned what it's like to perform in front of a thousand people. And probably the drama school might not be so good at teaching me that, so I'm going to try and get into the business. So I wrote various begging letters, and I got into Birmingham. Again, luck! I had played in the open-air theatre at Stratford-on-Avon in a university production. All the bigwigs from the Birmingham rep had seen it. So when my letter landed on the desk, they said, oh, this is the boy we saw doing that, Edward II at Stratford. Um, let's see him. And they saw me, dish in. I got in and stayed there for three years. That was my drama school, really.
2: Were you nervous when you, when you started? Oh, yes. I mean, I find I'm more nervous now than I, than I
3: used to be. Oh, darling, join the club. Yes, of course. I was always nervous. Yeah, always nervous. But I'm, I am now terrified.
2: I'm actually sick. The last thing that I, that I did at the Park Theatre, playing a thing called Sydney and the Old Girl... I was the old girl, you might have guessed that. And uh, I, I vomited the first night. Really? They had to have a bucket for me, yep. I was so frightened. Oh, God. Because the expectation is much greater.
3: Yes, absolutely.
2: If you have a reputation for being good, yes. and both of us do, you have to live up to it. Yeah, of course. And that you... is the terror. Of course. The terror that you're going to disappoint
3: people. Yes, yeah. That kind Kind of terror, I think, I've always had. Always had. I've always loved acting, and I've adored theatre more than anything. But now, the last theatre I did was uh, 2016. I played Mercutio, would you believe? I, re- I resisted. It was Ken Branner's production of Romeo and Juliet.
2: Well, he's very hard to resist, I think.
3: Yeah, he is. He is indeed. And he, he said, I want you to bring him And I said, no, 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 I'm far too old for Mercutio. You know, Mercutio is one of the boys. He uh, told me a story of a writer, whose name I've now forgotten, of course, went to Paris and they got talking to this elderly gentleman and last the old man said uh, he had to go. So he left and they said, the barman, did you know who that was? And the woman said that was Oscar Wilde. And Ken said, That's what I want. There was this elderly man getting on with the younger kids, amusing them, enjoying their company. He said, that's what I want for Mercutio. How how fascinating, interesting story. And I couldn't refuse. I couldn't refuse. Yeah.
2: And it kind it, it sort of worked. And it worked well, I started also writing letters, but Because I was in the footlights. Now, you weren't in the footlights, were you? Oh,
3: no. No, I didn't do footlights. That
2: was sort of another strand of the business. I was
3: a bit in awe of the footlights. (laughs) something I couldn't do. I couldn't do that, no.
2: I don't know why. They were a crap lot. (laughs) I didn't like them. They didn't like me. No. And we didn't have a very good time. But the thing about the Footlights is, if, you know, the Footlights is a, is a well-known institution. Yeah, indeed. And as a result, when we did the review, and I was the only girl of, I think, eight men or something like that. They all came to watch it. And so I, I did get to see and was seen by, very much as you were, by the people at Birmingham Rep. Yeah. And so when it came time for me to get a job, I wrote to the people, particularly one producer, radio producer, John Bridges, and he gave me an audition. And that's how I started in the business. And I started in radio. Yes. And I will probably finish in radio. I love it. Yes. I know how to work with a mic better than I do with a camera, for example, and maybe better than on the stage. Although yes. I, I've been good on the stage. I have done good work on the, on
3: the, yes.
2: on the stage. And I love theatre, like you. Yeah. It has a,
3: a unique magic. Yes, it does. It does. I regret that I seem to have lost the trick of it for now.
2: Oh, I don't think you've lost the trick of it. I just think you're old and it's a bit exhausting. <laughs> yes,
3: yes. It's exhausting. No, no it's... it's it, yes, it is. It is. It's also... It's also the fear. It's also... That, that has grown over the years, yes. It has.
2: Well, what I... I've started... Another career, I'm doing documentaries. Ah, yes. Which is a bit
3: saucy of me. Yes, I've seen them. I've seen them, yes. <laughs> well... You're very good at it.
2: I'm not bad at it, actually. I, no, I, you're
3: very good at and it. And
2: I think what what I've got is I've got an an intense curiosity about people. Yeah. I yeah. want to know what makes them tick, what's inside them, what's making them live yeah and if i can ask the right questions yes then everybody watching will know what's going on in their minds exactly exactly. and i do enjoy it and i'm very lucky yeah because you get paid to travel you see yes which is of course
3: magical yes
2: but you've yes. got a thing going with Last Tango in Halifax.
3: Oh it, well, it, I had a thing going. It stopped now. I don't is it think over we'll ever now do anymore. I think it's over. I think it's over. It was lovely while it lasted. I do enjoy the telly and the and the films. I, and I do find it, dare I say, easier than than theatre.
2: Why is that? Why is it easier?
3: I, well, because there are so many safety nets. There isn't that, you know the what I now refer to as the terror of going onto the stage, the fear of going onto the stage, that was always there, but it was, you needed that, you needed it, you needed to use that um, to perform. And it's exciting, terribly exciting. And the sense of achievement when, when, you, when the curtain comes down and it's, you've done it, you've been there, you've climbed Everest, it's wonderful. You've done Hamlet or Lear, or, you know, the satisfaction is fantastic. Television and films is is so different because you're surrounded by safety nets. If anything goes wrong, you do it again. They can't hear you, put the microphone closer. If you fluff the lines, do it again, up to take number 50 until you get it right. And, and they load you with money. <laughs> um, nobody ever got rich in the theatre. But for all, for all the, the, um, the problems of television and uh, films, uh, you're helped through them. There is always somebody to pick you up and set you on your way again and then give you the cash. Yes, it's cushy. It's a cushy job. It's cushy. It's cushy. Yeah, it is. it is. And no
2: one can say that theatre is cushy.
3: No. no No, it
2: isn't no do you remember doing little dorrit which was the thing that we did together we
3: did yes i do i love little dorrit
2: it was very special
3: yes and
2: working with you and alec guinness was extraordinary
3: yes he
2: was a very strange bloke actually alec was i i didn't get to know him at all i he kept himself to himself where i was concerned did you get to know him
3: Yes, I did. He invited me out to lunch a couple of times. He once invited me down to his house, I think it was in Petersfield, near Chichester, for lunch. What was that like? Well, I made a terrible blunder. There were about ten of us round the table for lunch, and I was sitting next to a lady. And suddenly the the conversation went table-wide, and the subject was Boris Karloff. And everybody talking about, um, you know, if they'd met him or what they thought of him. And I suddenly found myself saying, you know, I always found he was rather overrated. I mean, he had a look and a sound, but uh, I, I wouldn't say, you know, he was a great actor. Uh, at which point, the lady next to me put her hand on my arm and said, Dear, I think you should stop there. I'm Boris We widow. Oh, crikey! And then I've been slagging Boris Karloff off to his widow, dear. The silence round the table was so palpable. Nobody knew what to say. I was in a hole so deep. There was no clambering out. None at all. Just abject apologies.
2: I don't know what you could do. You can't backpedal that.
3: No, you can't. You can't. There's nothing you can do. You are covered in it. (laughs) Head to foot! Did he ask you back? I don't think he did. I don't <laughs> think he did. There was one scene in Little Dorrit, I remember, with uh, him, me and um, Cyril Cusack. And Alec and I were sitting at a table and Cyril Cusack was sitting on a bed behind Alex. And at one point in, in the rehearsal, Alec turned round and said, um, What are you doing? During the scene, um, Donald, and uh, he he just said, "Oh, I'm just I'm oh, just sitting here thinking," to which Kennedy said, "Well, Donald dear, don't think too loudly." <laughs> he was terrified of being upstaged, even by a, an actor thinking behind him. That's interesting. But he was a marvellous actor.
2: Yes. Oh, he gosh, he is. I yeah. I, I yeah. remember. I went to the theatre to see Harold Pinter acting in one of Harold Pinter's plays.
3: He was a good actor, wasn't he? He was a very, very good actor. He was. He was very laid back. He was very kind of from left field. He never did what you expected him to do. He was very good, very clever, yeah.
2: And somebody's phone rang in the auditorium. Yeah. And I was outraged by that as i still am when people's phones ring i think it's simply disgraceful
3: yeah yeah
2: and i i said in the interval very loudly i said how dare you allow your phone to ring during a performance the theater is a temple and you should be ashamed of yourself for desecrating it and i didn't know but alec guinness was sitting nearby in the audience and afterwards he said to me I very much agreed with what you said. Would you like to come and meet Harold Pinter afterwards? Uh, Well, of course, I was thrilled. So I said, oh, crumbs, yes. So he took me round to meet Harold Pinter, whom I didn't know, but of course, deeply admired. And he was a a strange... I didn't find him terribly warm.
3: No, he wasn't.
2: I didn't quite know what to say to him. And I... uh, (laughs) What I actually said, and I I feel a bit embarrassed actually repeating it now, is I said, you've got a really big cock. Oh! <laughs> I don't know what made me say that. How did you know? Well, I could see it in his trousers. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, you know, very often after I say things I've said, I feel... Deeply shocked and ashamed and disgusted with myself. And I was then, but it was like your remark at the dinner party there was no taking it back. No, no. It it just lay there for everyone. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Don't don't go
2: on, don't go on.
1: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
2: Did you like my performance as Flora Finching in Little Dorrit? Oh,
3: yes. Oh, yes. Because
2: I think it's one of my best.
3: Yes, it was very good. Very good. I mean, you were superb. We were all, actually, very well cast.
2: Yes, well, that was Christine Edzard, our director. Yeah. She was She was. Yeah. very remarkable. Yeah,
3: it was beautifully cast. It really was.
2: I remember when I went for the interview, I often remember the interview more than I do the actual <laughs> doing of it because one's keyed up, like anything, to, to, to be at one's best. Yeah. And uh, when I went for the interview... I just never stopped talking because I was trying to impress and be, yes. you know, show her that I was able to deal with words and had an agile mind. Yes. And I, I really talked myself into the part. Yes. So yeah. I was uh, very lucky. Well,
3: it's, that's very good. You, I'm a, a bit the opposite in auditions and things. I clam up. I, I get a bit frightened and uh, stammer badly
2: what do you feel about
3: read throughs the first read through when
2: one is with the cast and the director and everybody yes how do you approach that
3: well it's heads down on the page trying to make sense of what i'm saying i try not to give the impression that um the casting of me was a fatal mistake uh, <laughs> i i don't like those first readings really because I think everybody's there judging everybody else and, and uh, that worries me.
2: Yes, it is a very nervy experience. It's nerve-wracking.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish, sometimes I wish I had a star complex, which I had that confidence in myself and my abilities to shine all the time and to sell myself, which I've never been able to do, never.
2: You don't have that that quality, and I'm glad you don't, because the quality you have is of intelligence and humility. You come to your work bringing your skills, but not your admiration of yourself, and that is is
3: wonderful. It's...
2: Have you had directors that lifted you out of yourself into a great
3: performance? Oh, gosh. I was immensely lucky in, in that I was at the National Theatre, the original National Theatre at the Old Vic, for coming on to seven years. So I got to work with a lot of wonderful directors, including Laurence Olivier, who really was a wonderful, wonderful director, who loved his actors and trusted his actors and was wonderfully generous to the the young actors of whom I was one at that time in that company, the Ronnie Pickups and the oh. Michael Gambans and the Tony Hopkins yes. and the Charlie Kays and the Jeremy Bretts. and We were his kids, you know, and uh, I grew up in my early 20s, my early mid and late 20s, with stunning actors and stunning directors and the, all the, the directors were all very different. I remember there was one director who, um, whose method was to terrorise a performance out of his actors.
2: Was that John Dexter?
3: That was John Dexter, that was. Bastard. <laughs> Bill Gaskell was a close second. Peter Wood, Peter Wood was a close third. They really wanted to give actors a bad time because they thought that... Um, that made them more creative. Well, it's bollocks.
2: I don't believe that.
3: No, of course not. Of course not. But, you know, I remember Dexter giving... I was his whipping boy for about 18 months. At the end of which, he got me into a dressing room once and apologised. Actually said, I'm sorry I've treated you like this. He said, it's only because I think you're talented. Well... To use one of your phrases, fuck off, John Dexter.
2: <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. No, you can't, you you can coax talent. Yes. But you can't you can't damage it. You can't beat it.
3: You can't beat it out. No. You can't
2: beat it that's out. That's
3: what they, they did. They 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 tried to beat beat it, beat it out of you.
2: I loved working yeah. with Peter Hall. Did you ever work with him?
3: I never did. Oh, I, I nearly I did once in New York, but it didn't happen. No, I never I did. I just
2: loved him. I thought he was gifted and funny and immensely learned. I learnt so much from working with him. Yeah. He was wonderful with actors. Yes. I, I adored him.
3: Yeah. Clifford Williams was another. Did you ever work with Clifford?
2: No, I never did. Yeah,
3: he was lovely. He was lovely
2: too. Well, I never worked at the National and I never worked at the RSC. I was asked, but I was busy. I was working and so I wasn't free. Yeah. And I, I mm. very much regret that gap in my career. I would love to have been yeah. on the big stage, doing yeah. the big roles.
3: Again, you see, I was, I was lucky. Birmingham Rep, in my last year at Birmingham, They decided to do the three Shakespeare plays. Once Wednesday matinee, I'm playing Henry VIII, and none of us know but Sir Lawrence Olivier's out front, looking for talent for the new National Theatre. I go back to my dressing room, which I share with Cardinal Wolsey, and there's a knock on the door. Lawrence Olivier comes in on a Wednesday matinee at the Birmingham Rep. I'm dressed... For my tea in the Coenor. By this time, I'm not uh, got nothing on, and he shakes my hand and says, "Well done, well done, baby. That was very good, very good." He then goes over to Arthur Pentelow, who's playing Woolsey, and covers him with praise, saying how wonderful, and then leaves. And about twenty seconds later, there's another knock on the door, and he comes back in, and he comes up to me, and in those ringing tones, he says, Yo! And I said, yes, sir, uh, yes. And a week later, he gave me a job. Magic. Luck doesn't get any more than that. That was luck. The circumstance of those plays, that part, that particular journey he was on looking for young actors, and it all came together that Wednesday afternoon. And I stayed with him for seven years. doesn't get any better than that.
2: Absolutely. Did he reveal much of himself? in his work, in his rehearsals, um, because I always get the impression, and I never knew him, I met him when I was collecting autographs as a little girl. As I relate on the Graham Norton show, I creamed in my knickers uh, because he had such uh, animal
3: magnetism. Yes, he did, yes, he did, yes. Um, no, he, he, he wore many hats, he had many faces, um, if pushed, he could be a bit of a John Dexter. Um, but he didn't last very long, didn't last very long. He, lo- he loved actors too much. I remember one occasion, I took a... It was Much Ado About Nothing and I was playing Don John. And Albie Finney was playing Don Pedro. And Albert went off to make a movie. And so I was upped to take over Don Pedro instead of Albert. And we did a dress rehearsal and Sir Lawrence was watching. And at the end of the performance, Albert used to sit on a banquette, downstage left, smoking a cigar in a spotlight, and he uh, just blew the smoke ring out. And as this smoke ring, the lights descended on the smoke ring. It was a magical end of the show. I couldn't blow a smoke ring. So I was smoking my cigar, sitting there, just noticed the spotlight and blew the spotlight out which worked ultimately almost as well so lawrence came down he'd been watching the dress rehearsal now i'm i'm no albert finney i'm no sex god as albert was uh he came down to the footlights and he said baby darling boy I wondered what you were going to do at the end, and that was very good, the blowing of the spot, very good, but uh, I've, I've got a better idea. Why don't you jump up onto the bonnet, rip off your wig, and shout, je suis un homme. Now, what did that mean? That was the other side of Olivier. I didn't have Albert's balls, that's what he was saying. Astonishing, but I was so hurt. I was so hurt, but that was the another side of Olivia. You know, he could be loving and marvelous, and he could do that too.
2: You mentioned the word sex. I haven't. Did I? <laughs> I have not. And it is a truth that we are both old yeah. and homosexual.
3: What is your point?
2: <laughs> I just think that it's interesting that now. It's not really of much importance. No. But it was. It was. It was. When I started, which was in 1960, 1962, well, 1960 to 63, I was at university. I went on the stage, or I became a professional actress in 65 for the first time. So at that time, I didn't know I was gay. But as soon as I found out I broadcasted. I told everybody. I was tiresomely lesbian. I was ecstatically lesbian. And really, I went on like that. I was so not in the closet that people (laughs) begged me to get back into it. (laughs) You, on the other hand, were not like that because that is not your nature. You don't broadcast yourself. You are a private sort of person and you prefer to be private. Mm. And I wonder sometimes if my behaviour grated on you, because it was unnecessary.
3: No, great is not the word. I I suppose, if I'm honest, I rather admired it. Something that uh, I couldn't do, didn't want to do. I wasn't ashamed of of, uh, being gay, but that was me all my friends knew I didn't have to keep stressing it I didn't have to keep talking about it blurting it out
2: that's wonderful
3: but uh, for the first 40 years of my life I didn't have a partner I was I was on my own and uh, I've been with my partner now for 45 years this year well
2: with Heather and me it's 53. oh God um, but God you know when you oh, lose dear. the love of your life yes it it's unbearable. Yes. I, I'm, I'm frightened to think anything... So am I. Do you, so you am feel I. that too? Yes. I don't know. I think I'm not really ageing very well. I have to be honest. I don't like being old. I don't like it.
3: No, I don't. I don't. Do you know, I um, had a quotation recently that I've been trying to live by. Uh, it was Clint Eastwood. And a fan went up to Clint Eastwood and said, Mr Eastwood, you're still working, I think he's 90, how do you do it? And Clint Eastwood said, I don't let the old man in. Ah. And I'm trying to live by that. I know the times I let him in, but most of the time I try not to let him in. And it works.
2: Well, if it works for you, that's good. And I think it's a great remark. Yeah but nobody told me that it was going to be like this no it, it's come as a surprise that my mobility would be less because i'm fat and i've got something called spinal stenosis which is a condition yeah but you know we don't want to we don't want to do the organ recital of, of all <laughs> of all the things that are wrong with us that's not what this is about no <laughs> I haven't told you much about the films because no. I lived in Hollywood for sixteen years and I did quite a lot of movies did over you there. Really? Yes, I did. Uh... I wouldn't do it again. No, I'm not really interested in film, quite honestly. I like the money and I like the location. Yes, yes. And it's fun working with people like Leonardo DiCaprio and Charlton Heston. Yes, he was fun to work with. Yes, although of course I'm a very political person and you're not. No. I know that you don't push your politics at people well, the way I do. No. But he was a, a great gunman, Charlton Heston. Oh, that's,
3: yes, that's right. Yes. But he was
2: a very nice mm, guy yeah. and very big. I remember that he was so tall. When we had to play in the same scene together, they had to dig a trench for him and put me on a box. Oh. I played an Egyptian gynaecologist.
3: As <laughs> one does, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, my first film was Day of the Jackal. Oh, yes. With Eddie Fox, Fred Zinnemann directing it. And that was fascinating. I'd never done a film before. But the film I really adored, because all my stuff was filmed on the island of Malta in a mock Colosseum, was Gladiator with Russell Crowe. And Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, I liked
2: Joaquin. He's nice. Yeah, he's great. I can't stand Russell Crowe. He's a pain.
3: <laughs> what a pain! Well, I didn't have much to do with Russell. Uh, I had much more to do with, with Joaquin, and it was it was lovely. It was it was a great experience. Yes, I loved that. And then Ken Branagh got me to Hollywood briefly to Paramount in a film that he was doing with Emma Thompson, and I played the murderer, the villain. Which was, which was wonderful.
2: I can't remember the name of that because I think I was in that as well.
3: You were, you were. I can't remember the name of it. What was it called? I
2: just can't think.
3: No, I can't.
2: But I do remember this, that it was Ken's first production in Hollywood.
3: That's right.
2: And he was very disappointed in the behaviour of the crew because they kept chattering and not paying attention. And one day he sacked the lot of them. Do you remember that?
3: Yes, I do. I do.
2: I don't know if he did it publicly, but I saw his face darken at one point and everybody got sacked and a whole new crew came in the next day. Oh, yes. Because he wasn't going to be made fun of as, you know, the Brit who didn't know, who who wasn't a director. Uh, Yes. Because he was a director. He was was brilliant. He is
3: brilliant. Yes, he was.
2: And what a nice man too. I like him.
3: Yes, yes.
2: Have you won a film award ever?
3: Uh, yes.
2: What was it for? Do you remember?
3: Um, I can never remember awards either. I sit there in the audience if I have to go, kind of petrified, <laughs> um, because you have to. If you win, you've got to make a speech and. And and it's it's awful.
2: Of course. Well, I did win one. I've only won one film award, a big one, which was the, the BAFTA Best Supporting. Oh yes. And it was for *The Age of Innocence*. Oh yes. And I really did love being in that because that was Martin yes. Scorsese, and he's a another great director. Oh yes,
3: yeah. I I, yes, I have one telly. Things and I'll have to go upstairs and look. They're all upstairs somewhere. Do <laughs> I, I, you know I can't remember? I truly can't remember.
2: Well, that's because, in a way, awards aren't important. They're not. They're important because they might help you to get more work.
3: Yes.
2: Bring your name forward.
3: I've never won an Oscar. I've won a, an Olivier, a BAFTA, a Tony for American Theatre. I've never won a, an, an Oscar.
2: Well, I, I think the Oscars are slightly... Demode day now i don't think they they've,
3: uh, yeah, yeah, they've yes, slightly I lost
2: think. their sheen unfortunately
3: they have a bit yes they have rather
2: well i've asked you lots of questions you have but you haven't asked you're, me. Very <laughs> you're very
3: good at it you're very good at it well i want to know i want to know what do you do when you're not working when you're not thinking about playing somebody else when you're being you?
2: When I'm being me, I'm doing genealogy. Oh. I'm doing the family tree oh. and um, chatting up relatives, finding relatives, sending in the DNA tests. Oh. I'm absolutely fascinated by genealogies.
3: Have you made great discoveries?
2: I have. I found out through DNA that actually I didn't find out, but the guy contacted me. I had a first cousin. And I, he contacted me and I said, are you Jewish? And he said, no. And I said, well, I don't think that we can be related because <laughs> I'm Jewish and everybody in my family is Jewish and we always have been. And we found out through research and through his wife going back through the census forms that my grandfather had an affair with a lady round the corner <sighs> who was his grandmother. <sighs> So we were related, but not officially. So you were. Not officially. No. And there are many, many cases of liaison like that, which are discovered, in this case, more than a 100 years after the fuck. Oh!
3: (laughs) Oh, gosh.
2: I bet you if you look into your family, you'll find something like that. Uh,
3: Yes, I have no story like that. I I did... um... Who do you think you are on the telly? You know, when they go back into your histories. And they decided that the name Jacoby was was so boring that they couldn't go that way. And they said, what about your, your mother's side? And the moment I told them the name of my grandmother on my mother's side, they um, went through hoops. Her name was Salome Lapland. How amazing! Isn't that the most gorgeous name? Yeah. Salome Lapland. And she was French. It was an anglicised version of Lapland. I see. Yes. And so they went down that route. But the the Jacobi must be Jewish. Well, yeah, this that extraordinary thing. I once said to my grandfather, who was the gentlest, gentlest old soul you could wish to meet. And I said to him one day, um, I was quite young, Grandad, Jacobi's a Jewish name, isn't it? And his reaction astounded me. He became angry. He denied it um, and said, you know, where did we get that from? And I, I said, well, the boy at school said i have got a Jewish name. And I'd never seen him like that. This mild old man was very angry. He, he didn't further it. He, um, he told me never to think of that, think in that way again. So there must have been a history somewhere a persecution somewhere or whatever. But it was never mentioned, never mentioned again. And I've never thought of myself since then as Jewish, no. But uh, the name, particularly the name spelt with a Y at the end. mine spelt with an I. I don't know if that makes any difference. Who knows, it may. If that puts us near, nearest to Jacobus and James and I don't know.
2: Usually we discount spelling because it changes through the years and
3: oh, yeah.
2: even siblings with the same name spell them differently. Yeah.
3: yeah. So
2: I, I don't know. I don't know, but I would have thought that you might have a Jewish yeah ancestor somewhere.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think that is I think that is true.
2: And the other thing that I do in my spare time is I'm very political. Uh. I care about the way the country's going. And I don't like it. And I am outspoken in my detestation of certain recent acts from this government. And I'm very worried about the future of the BBC and Channel 4 and the way that the so-called culture secretary of the moment (gasps) has tried to remove an enormous amount of money from London theatre companies and people who are in receipt of of monies from the Arts Council in order to take it out of London and put it into the provinces. There's nothing wrong with putting money into the provinces but don't take it out of London. Take it out
3: of London, I agree, I agree.
2: Just find more money because the arts, and I really believe this passionately, are the soul of the nation. We need our arts, we need our theatres, our music, our art galleries, Our rappers, our dancers, we need them to keep us sane in this troubled,
3: difficult world. Absolutely, absolutely, So
2: Well, I think now we've sort of run out of time, Derek, so I should give you a, a hug from afar. Yes. And just ask you, what might be
3: next? I'm going to take the dog for a walk.
2: Well, I've got a job to do. I'm going to do a documentary about Lady Gregory in Ireland.
3: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And do they pay you for that as well?
2: Fucking right. <laughs> I'm not a fucking charity, mate.
3: <laughs> I never thought you were, love. <laughs> it's been lovely talking to you, Miriam. I've, I've loved it too. Really lovely. Bye, darling. Bye and bye-bye. Bye.
1: Thank you, Miriam and Derek. This podcast is raising funds for Acting for Others, which provides both financial and emotional support to theatre workers in times of need through a network of 14 wonderful member charities. This is Ben's story.
2: I was working in London as a jobbing actor. I just never imagined at that time that me, age 25, that I would be someone diagnosed with cancer. I saw my whole life flash before my eyes. When I started the painful and quite frankly really frightening rounds of chemo and surgery, I was terrified by the reality of my desperate financial situation. On top of all of this, being an out-of-work actor, I couldn't afford to live and pay my bills through my treatment. But all of this changed the moment I was put in touch with Acting for Others. They got me financial support that I so desperately needed. I don't know if I could have done it without them.
1: If you have the means and would like to make a donation to help people like Ben, you can do so via our website, actingforothers.co.uk, or click on the link in the show notes. Any donation, it doesn't matter how small, will make a big difference. For more episodes, please subscribe and download. And while you're there, we'd love you to rate and review us. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Matt and Scott, a pod monkey, for their editing wizardry, the inimitable Dan Gillespie Sells for the music, and Feast for the artwork. The producer was Robert Reese. The executive producer was Kevin Mundi. This has been a Simple Beast production.